You are tuned to the Pottery Series on Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry. Thanks for listening today as we treat the topics of clay and temper in pottery. So, you know, uh, when I think about clay, clay is often thought of as this really, um, you know, such a humble, mundane uh, kind of thing that's uh, of little interest to people. Um, most people don't stop to ponder it. Maybe for us in the West who are not potters, we're used to really only encountering clay as like mud on the soles of our shoes or a nuisance that we have to deal with um, in our outdoor home gardens. But as I've been trying to impress in the previous episodes, people use clay quite literally to mold their own livelihoods and impress in them their culture's traditions. Folklorist Henry Glassie, in his book, Potter's Art, uh, which was published in 1999, writes, quote, pottery makes plain the transformation of nature. Clay from the earth blends with water from the sky. The amorphous takes form in the hand. The wet becomes dry in the air. The soft becomes hard and the dull becomes bright in the fire. End quote. You know, it, it's it's really through this topic of clay, I think, that we begin to see the intimate kind of relationship that non-industrial societies have had with the earth. And I think, you know, this is something that, uh, you know, uh, that those of us who suffer from the dystopia of capitalism maybe feel a little nostalgic for. And I think it's one of the reasons that I felt drawn uh, to the study of pottery uh, years ago. I desired this sort of grounded connection, which was so absent from the fast-paced life that I was living. And I'm always so curious as to how many others maybe are drawn to this class or are drawn to the study of pottery for that very same reason, craving that grounded connection with the earth. So here's the irony of clay to me, at least. Um, the irony of clay is how complicated discussions of it really can get. And maybe that's maybe one of the first things that you get out of this week's learning materials. How deep you want to explore the properties of clay depends on the nature of your research and the questions that you want to ask. So in today's episode, uh, we'll address some of the most fundamental issues here about clay. Um, so we'll talk about where does it come from um, and how we define it. We'll move on to problematizing inclusions and aplastics that we encounter in clays, um, as well as what's sometimes here called temper by archaeologists. And we'll also uh, talk a little bit about how clay behaves uh, during the drying process. So as I've emphasized in previous episodes, coming to know pottery requires the convergence of many disciplines. And in this week's learning materials, I think we clearly see how the fields of geology, mineralogy, soil science, material science, and even geochemistry 
informs the archaeologists' uh, knowledge base of clay and aplastics or temper. The significant advances uh, made in the hard and natural sciences after World War II formed this very rather robust body of knowledge concerning clay. So clay in this context, right, is treated more as scientific specimen though. A bit of the information that we have to discuss in this segment, uh, you know, we have to understand really is Western knowledge. It's the result of very recent, relatively modern discoveries. Traditional potters, uh, especially of those of archaeological cultures of the past, uh, connected with materials that were available to them and used their intuition to identify favorable clay. Um, as Rice says about traditional potters, I quote her here, she says, quote, their criteria and limitations are not those of 20th century Western science and industry, end quote. So in other words, uh, traditional potters worked from intergenerationally transmitted craft knowledge and intuition, not these very uh, uh, Western industrial commercial assessments of clay. So pottery is said to be of earth, right? Because its primary constituent is clay, which is formed in what we call the earth's lithosphere or crust. When viewed under a high-powered microscope, these clay particles actually look similar to platelets, um, and they have a relatively large surface area. The Clay Mineral Society defines a clay as, quote, a naturally occurring material composed primarily of fine-grained minerals, which is generally plastic at appropriate water contents and will harden when dried or fired, end quote. I wanna emphasize here um, that by fine-grained, we mean really fine-grained. In fact, its granulometry or grain size uh, of clay is actually a defining characteristic of clay itself. True clays and beyond the order of 0 0.002 micrometers or less. Um, and you can see clearly, I think, in Rice's figure 2.2, how clay's tiny granulometry compares to that of larger sediments um, like silt and sand, uh, uh, which are uh, finer than other sediments like gravel, for example. Figure 2.3 is also useful here, I think, when visualizing what constitutes descriptive categories of soils, a clay, of course, being one kind of soil. The soil diagram uh, on figure 2.3 is important in terms of uh, fieldwork or site excavation as well. Classifying soil type as a loam, a silt, a silty clay, for example, is an important observation uh, to include in field notes. Um, so you might wanna consider bringing a copy of this chart with you um, when you go into uh, the field uh, to excavate a site uh, for quick reference. Now, all clay derives from broken down and decomposed rock. 
clay that is identified uh, in relatively close uh, location to a parent rock is referred to as primary or residual clay. What we call clasts or large coarser particles may appear in these primary clays. Um, and these clasts are usually debris from parent rock from where the primary clay originated from. Now, uh, clasts can make the clays uh, quite stiff um, and contribute to what we call low plasticity. Uh, when we're talking about plasticity, we're referring to a clay's ability to be shaped by pressure, uh, but to also hold its, uh, excuse me, to hold its shape uh, when wet with water. Um, we're going to be talking a little bit more about uh, the concept of plasticity, though, uh, in just a few minutes. Now, what we call secondary clays are found some distance from parent rock, uh, having been moved by wind or uh, waves or streams or even uh, glaciation. Secondary clays are more abundant than primary clays, and they actually represent about 90% of all clay deposits on Earth. The secondary clays have a finer texture um, and a higher organic content than primary clays tend to have, making them more plastic. Now, Clays tend to fall into uh, one of two main categories, uh, these being kaolin or smectite clays. And here I think it's important to highlight some of these distinctions because they kind of have a bearing for a clay's workability. Kaolin clays are composed of the mineral kaolinite which tends to form in tropical or subtropical regions with heavy rainfall, uh, but also has good soil drainage. Kaolins are relatively free of impurities, so it's thought of as a, as a pure clay. And kaolins fire to a white color, making them very attractive for potters. Kaolins can be a primary, they can be secondary clays, uh, but they do tend to have relatively large uh, particle sizes and uh, are thus considered low in plasticity. Uh, they do have less chance of cracking uh, and shrinkage when drying and can actually uh, uh, attain on its own a very natural kind of uh, luster or shine uh, without the addition of any type of uh, polishing or rubbing the walls, what we call burnishing them. Um, um, so making, uh, making kaolins uh, pre uh, preferred by some potters uh, for that very reason. Now, smectite clays have smaller particles than kaolins and are more plastic and sticky feeling. Smectites are formed under conditions of poor soil drainage and low rainfall. Um, they hold more water than kaolins um, and are more susceptible to shrinkage and cracking during the drying process for that reason. So some potters uh, might actually instead prefer to use some smectites uh, for the base of slips and paints uh, used to decorate pottery, uh, which is a topic we're going to return to in a future episode, actually. 
So, so far, we've talked a bit about where clay comes from, how grain size is an important and defining characteristic of clay, and we've also highlighted how clays can be grouped. Now, again, this body of knowledge is much so a product of Western material and natural science. But from a potter's perspective, plasticity is the most significant characteristic of clay. Plasticity is what makes clay smooth. Uh, it makes it a little sticky, a little slimy, but it's what makes clay workable into a uh, myriad different vessel uh, shapes. Now, according to, uh, to Prudence Rice, she says, quote, plasticity is the property that allows a clay to be shaped by pressure and to retain that form when the pressure is relaxed, end quote. So clay becomes plastic. It achieves plasticity when water is added to it. A plastic state can usually be achieved with the addition of usually just a small amount of water. As clay interacts with water, uh, it becomes absorbed by the clay. Individual clay particles become surrounded by a thin film of water which acts as a kind of lubricant uh, and helps these tiny individual clay particles slide over one another. So finer clays, like those belonging to the smectite group, are said to be more plastic. Because there are more individual platelets in a given volume, which present a larger surface area. Now, we can measure, we can assess uh, what is called water of plasticity fairly easily by adding water from a graduated cylinder to a defined uh, volume of dry clay, mixing them together, and recording the amount of water that it took to achieve what is called initial plasticity, meaning the minimum amount of water necessary to make the clay uh, feel plastic. Now, we'll keep recording the amount of water needed to achieve full plasticity, or really the upper limit of the working range when it starts to get really sticky. Uh, the amount of water added, uh, which is expressed in a range that captures uh, both initial and full plasticity, is equal to the clay's water of plasticity percentage. Now, here I think uh, listeners might find it helpful to refer to Rice's Table 3.1, which illustrates the average water of plasticity ranges of several known clays. Um, there are also uh, formulas uh, to determine water of plasticity based on the weight of the wet clay object uh, versus its height, I'm sorry, versus its weight, rather, uh, when it's dried. Now, um, you know, as we've been saying, these types of commercial tests, uh, these plasticity tests, have been developed by commercial industries, but may not be how traditional potters assessed plasticity. Um, plasticity is a subjective uh, judgment for skilled potters. Potters have developed, along uh, many years of learning craft, intuition of what feels right. And I quote uh, Prudence, <clears throat> excuse me, I quote Prudence Rice here. 
uh, she says uh, potters will test plasticity by quote squeezing a lump of clay biting it rubbing a small pinch between thumb and forefinger or making a loop of it to judge its plastic characteristics end quote now in potter's tongue clays with broad workability uh, that can be hand molded or thrown are called fat or rich. Fat clays are preferable by potters uh, in, in a number of cases. You know, they're fine, they're sticky, they're, excuse me, very plastic. Often smectites are uh, thought of as these fat or rich clays. <clears throat> Lean clays, on the other hand, have a, uh, have a narrower working range and are more coarse in texture, uh, but may be suitable for crafting, you know, larger hand-built objects uh, just because they don't shrink quite as much. Now, non-clay uh, non materials, or what we call aplastic materials, can be found in naturally occurring clay deposits uh, and in the bodies of pottery. Non-clay materials convey properties to pottery during uh, the forming, the drying, the firing, to even how the vessel behaves as a finished product that's part of a living cultural system. Non-clay materials uh, may exist naturally within the matrix uh, of a raw clay deposit, or they may be intentionally added by a potter. So uh, you'll recall that we talked about clasts a few minutes ago, the chunky material from parent rock that may remain in a clay deposit. Well, clasts are non-clay materials. Uh, gravel, larger grained uh, sediments uh, uh, like sand, these may also be non-clay things found in clays. Organic matter, uh, bacteria, uh, and even acids uh, may naturally occur in clay deposits too. But we have instances where a potter might actually choose to add these kinds of things to increase plasticity. So we know that potters sometimes add um, um, things that we might think would be unusual, uh, but they're not to potters because they increase plasticity. So I'm talking about things like yogurt, vinegar, beer, starch. Um, all of these things might be added by traditional and studio potters actually uh, to adjust the workability of the clay by altering the pH and adding some useful bacteria. Potters might also use what we call aged clays that uh, have been kept perhaps for generations in a family. Um, or they might even add a small amount of aged, uh, excuse me, of aged clay to a new clay. Mold growth on clay uh, is very undesirable, though. Um, you know, this is sort of a fascinating area of, uh, of study to me uh, that I think has potential for an experimental research project going forward. Um, I recommend taking a look at the article I posted by Dudley Glick titled The Microbiology 
of aging clays uh, for more on aged clays. Now, temper is another kind of a plastic material that's encountered in clay uh, that can alter it in significant ways. As Prudence Rice uh, tells us, uh, tempers, uh, quote, may increase plasticity, decrease stickiness, uh, which, by the way, we want stickiness, but we don't want too much. It sort of has to be just right. Um, but reduce shrinkage, lower the vitrification point in firing, or increase the strength of the fired piece, end quote. Now, in your learning materials, um, I'm going to include a reference guide for you to just take a look at. Um, but I think it might be useful to look at um, because it's an example of a tool that we might use um, in an archaeology lab to estimate uh, the various quantities of temper uh, in a pottery body. So be on the lookout for that. But here I'd like to discuss with you some of the theoretical problems surrounding discussions of temper. Um, here we'll also uh, certainly go over uh, as well materials used to temper traditional pottery. So we'll talk about that in this segment. And I also want to discuss with you the results of an experimental study on temper. Uh, and this was done by uh, archaeologists Kent Fowler and colleagues. So here's the theoretical problem with temper. It can be difficult to determine for sure whether temper was added intentionally uh, to a pottery body or whether it occurred in the clay naturally without human intervention. Rice makes a subtle but I think a keen observation about temper that occurs naturally in a clay deposit. And she says here, and I quote her, behaviorally, this is untempered clay, although technically and functionally, the inclusions modify the properties of the clay mineral component, end quote. So the issue here is if an aplastic material was not intentionally added, does it still qualify as a true temper? So for this reason, I want you to know that some people who study pottery prefer to call these materials just um, non-plastics, or e some people might even say inclusions. Uh, these are more general kinds of words that cover more total circumstances. So just be aware that going forward, the word temper has been problematic for some, despite that archeologists kind of use it all the time in their professional circle. So some ethnographic literature does seem to suggest that salt may have been added, uh, may have been an added aplastic to ameliorate what we call spalling. Uh, spalling uh, refers to these sort of chips that break off from the pottery surface. We also see that clay itself may have been used like a temper. Uh, the gamo, of southwest Ethiopia, for example, are known to mix several types of clay together, which they believe uh, influence plasticity uh, and strength of the clay. Charcoal has also been documented uh, as temper, uh, and we see this in places uh, like South America, 
the Caribbean and Florida, uh, where potters we think may have taken handfuls of it from cooking hearths. And we think this really may have been the case because we also see calcined bone along with charcoal. Now, interestingly enough, we can actually date the charcoal, we can date the bone, and most other types of organic inclusions in archaeological pottery using a technique called accelerated mass spectrometry, or uh, otherwise known as AMS dating. AMS dating uh, is this uh, uh, improvement that was made to radiocarbon dating in the 1980s, um, and it requires just a tiny sample size, a very small sample size that's on the order of just about uh, the size of a sesame seed. Um, going back to uh, other types of temper uh, that we know have been used, um, another one is animal dung, and this has been document, uh, excuse me, documented as a temper in Russia. Uh, the dung of herbivorous animals is preferred for its high plant matter, um, and as are bird droppings, actually. Blood has been used as temper, uh, and this has been documented in uh, the North American Arctic. Another temper is what we call grog, uh, or crushed pottery. So things like waster sherds, uh, broken sherds, we've talked about those in previous episodes, those were probably things that would have been upcycled into a uh, temper, the temper that we call grog. Most common, however, are what we call mineral tempers. So these include things like uh, crushed rock uh, or grit, uh, sand, and even volcanic material like ash and pumice. Grit temper has really been widely reported in prehistoric archaeological pottery identified in North America. Now, Kent Fowler and colleagues have done some interesting experimental research on grit temper, and I kind of like reading their work here because it gives readers a sense of how experimental archaeology can be applied to pottery studies. So in their study, they're interested in testing whether grit temper affects what we call shrinkage of pottery uh, that was produced by pre-contact archaeological cultures in the vicinity of Sepiwesk Lake in Manitoba, uh, Canada. Now, shrinking occurs during the drying and firing phase of production. As water evaporates from a clay body during the drying process, it actually pulls the tiny clay particles closer and closer together until they become very densely packed and literally come in contact with each other. So drying and firing is actually a really precarious step in the pottery production process because at a microscopic level, there's so much going on. And it actually can be sometimes very stressful on the potter to monitor. Drying and firing is usually where you're most likely to lose a vessel to a defect or a mistake. So if a, if a mistake is going to happen, it's, it's usually going to happen here. So pottery can develop flaws, right? Like cracking and shrinking if a piece is dried too quickly or incompletely. The ambient conditions, meaning like the uh, environment uh, of the drying process, 
is a real factor here uh, that potters consider. Um, so fluctuating temperature, uh, fluctuating humidity, different air currents um, really can wreak havoc. And according to Rice, uh, quote, are perhaps the greatest contributors to non-uniform drying, leading to defects and loss of strength in a clay body, end quote. So really what we're saying here is that potters uh, pay real attention to the conditions in which they store uh, drying pottery. Uh, cracks and shrinking um, may show up uh, in a piece uh, as it is drying uh, to what is referred to as the leather hard stage or when enough water has evaporated to the point that shrinking stops. So if a pot makes it to the leather hard stage, it's probably a good sign. Um, now at this leather hard stage, uh, stage the clay may still um, um, appear a little damp, uh, it may still appear a bit dark, but at leather hard enough water has been driven out where additional shrinkage uh, will not occur. Potters will actually say that the, uh, the feel of a vessel at this stage is similar to leather of the same thickness, so hence its name, why we call it a leather hard. When a pot has made it to the leather hard stage without defect, it is said to have what potters call green strength, meaning it's acquired enough integrity uh, to avoid cracking and warping in a dry but unfired state. Uh, the addition of things like flour, uh, starch, uh, cornstarch, um, uh, casein, which is a milk solid, um, and even tree gums uh, to a clay mass, uh, these additions are said to improve green strength. Um, in some cases, though, um, flaws may not appear um, until a piece is fired. Now, returning to our discussion of Seepy Whisk Lake in Manitoba, it's a really interesting area, I think, from an archaeological perspective, because, you know, so much prehistoric pottery has been identified there. Over 106,000 shirts have been excavated from 800 sites uh, in the Sepiwisk area at the date of the author's writing. And the authors uh, actually remark that uh, that clay and grit tempering material uh, is still found abundantly along Sepiwisk uh, Lake uh, today. Now, it's been long assumed in, uh, amongst archaeologists in Manitoba, and quite frankly, elsewhere in many places around the world, that grit tempering conveyed necessary technical attributes that ameliorated the effects of shrinkage and cracking during the drying and firing stage uh, because it creates a coarser clay body. Now, coarser clay bodies facilitate water to move out of vessel walls while drying. The results of Fowler and colleagues' study, uh, you know, seem to indicate that grit temper below 30% of the mass did in fact convey a desirable quality in that it reduced uh, shrinkage uh, during the drying and firing process by about 5%. Now, the authors state that, you know, this might not seem like much, 
but um, it turns out that it that it it turns that it bears out some important ramifications as we see. So by adding grit, uh, Fowler and colleagues write, quote, fewer pots would develop cracks that impeded their use, and potters could expect fired vessels to be very close to the size and capacity of pre-fired forms, end quote. Another finding was that, you know, despite the advantages of using grit temper, it was not technologically necessary to achieve a usable ceramic product. Adding temper to clay is not a technical necessity from a purely functional perspective, the authors are telling us. And they posit that adding grit temper, um, though improved the overall workability of clay, uh, resulting in these kinds of forgiving pastes uh, that could be easily used uh, by young potters uh, who were still learning the craft. Uh, grit temper clay uh, may also have a wider seasonal range of workability in the sense that um, it's more resilient to seasonal temperature and humidity fluctuations. It's also offered here by Fowler and colleagues that adding grit temper uh, may also have been part of an archaeological culture's just tradition of making pottery, their pottery tradition. Um, I think this article by Fowler and colleagues really embodies a pretty uh, scientific approach to analyzing archaeological pottery. And I think it's also super important I think a couple of things are important. I think it's important that we grasp the degree to which pottery studies and archaeology uh, have this inherently uh, very scientific component to it, but that really needs to be balanced out. And what we don't want to do, I think, is lose sight of the fact that experimental archaeology, uh, you know, may only take us so far sometimes. We need to remember that these are cultures, all, uh, excuse me, albeit archaeological ones. Um, these pots were made by real people who during uh, their lifetime were, uh, as Fowler and colleagues write, embedded in social relations. So we really need to turn to the ethnographic and the ethno-historical record next to draw analogies that help archaeologists humanize archaeological cultures. We're going to pick up with this theme uh, next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Pottery Series on Cultural Corner with Dr. Kerry. Have a wonderful week and take good care.